The scripture for today's sermon is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. The word of God speaks to us. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is God's word to us. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. I'm Dave, one of the pastors here. I was gone last week and missed you, but uh, heard and listened to Chad just do an amazing job. And so it's a real treat to have him up from Frontline downtown. So we're going to continue in the series. We're in chapter six, about midway through chapter six of Corinthians as we just go verse by verse uh, through this book together. And so let's pray together uh, for one another, me for you, you for me, and then we'll dig into our scripture today. So Heavenly Father, We're so thankful for your faithfulness and your grace that's already so evident this morning. For Noble, for Bryce, for the proclamation that they made and coming to the waters of baptism, your gospel has already resounded here today. And so we we come and I pray that we would be able to have open hearts, open lives, to hear what you have for us this morning. And as we often pray, I pray that I would just be a good friend and shepherd to my friends in this room and be able to point all of our hearts to the beauty, Jesus, of who you are and what you have done. We pray this in your name, Christ Jesus. And together we say, amen, amen. I was thinking this week about how distance often distorts our perception. And you know, I've experienced this. I'm sure you have your own versions of similar experiences. And I was thinking of, of one particular moment in, in the life of my family when we took a vacation to a place in Colorado called the Great Sand Dunes National Park. If you've ever been there, make sure it's the last place you go on your trip because sand is everywhere when you leave. Um, but it was, it was incredible. But Anna, my wife, did a lot of reading and research and just... Um, you know, found this unique and beautiful place with these big dunes. They're sitting right up against the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, these mountains that have this red hue that translates to the blood of Christ in English, this beautiful place that we were looking forward to, and we were excited to spend a few days there. But I remember distinctly, like, driving there in central Colorado, up north on Highway 160, and finally these sand dunes came into view, and how I felt was underwhelmed. They just didn't look like the images online, right? But the reality was we were kind of far away, but in my view and my perception, the great sand dunes just didn't seem that great at all. But as we drove closer, of course, the obvious thing happened, right? They got, they got bigger, And they didn't really get bigger, but I drew closer and then I could just perceive the reality of who they were, what they were. And when we finally arrived at the base of those sand dunes, man, they really were great, majestic and unique and made you feel really small 
as you stood there and just took in the beauty and the wonder and the majesty. And even when, as a family, we like engaged them and we began to try to hike on those dunes, you would see one that looked really easy in your perception to summit. And then when you actually tried, you realized that it was way bigger and more grand and more massive than you could gauge when you actually engaged it. We underestimate the greatness of many things in life when we're too far away. Now, I bring this up. What's the point? Because, you know, I was experiencing this. It's, it's, it's in a way what this, this church in Corinth is experiencing in their relationship and their view of God. They've got distance between the truth of the gospel. They've got distance between themselves and God. And now God and the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done, because of this church's distance from these things, their, their warped, their distorted perception is leading them to believe that God and the gospel aren't as grand as they are in reality, their view and their perception of, of the good news of Jesus and the reality of God is too small, specifically as it relates to, to God's righteousness, his holiness, and specifically as it relates to God's grace. Uh, Pastor Kale has done a really good job to serve us by building out that little resource shelf in the lobby And so I encourage you, if you haven't gone by, to kind of check that out. But a great book is featured there right now. It's called uh, The Meaning of Marriage by Timothy Keller, one of my my favorite pastors. And in that book, The Meaning of Marriage, Pastor Keller, he defines the gospel, the good news, as this. He writes, the gospel is this. We are Way we are, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. See, that's what Paul wants this church in Corinth to see. What, what we need to see as we engage this scripture. This church in Corinth saw God's righteousness as, as a small thing. They saw God's, uh, God's view of their sin as a, a small thing. And then they saw God's grace as a result as a small thing. And Paul in love is saying, hey, you guys need to actually draw closer to a God who has drawn close to you in love. You need to bridge the gap of this distance. You need to stop running away in sin from God. You need to turn back in repentance and draw close and once again see him rightly, see his righteousness rightly, and see his grace rightly. Paul's saying there's good news y'all have forgotten about who God is and who you are. And what Paul is doing for that church and for our church, for us in this moment, is, is a powerful reminder for us to draw close and see reality. And so we're going to explore what Paul has to say in, in, in two points. And the first is this, that Paul wants this church, wants us to rightly see God's righteousness. One, we need to rightly see God's righteousness. Let's look at what Ashley read for us again. Verse 9. Or do you not know that the right, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul says, do you not know? Do you not know? And, and Paul says, do you not know, like 10 times in the New Testament. He says, do you not know, eight times in 1 Corinthians. And he says, do you not know, six times in chapter 6 of, of 1 Corinthians. And when Paul says, do you not know, we're experiencing a very Paul thing. It's a feature of his preaching. Most pastors have ticks and phrases, you know, catchphrases that they use. I'm sure I have them. You know about them. I don't. We, you can just keep it to yourself. I don't need to know, right? One of my favorite pastors of all time, a frontline pastor here, he used to say, uh, are you tracking with me? Every time he made a, a point that he wanted you to really hold on to. Are you tracking with me? Are you tracking with me? We always go, yes, we're tracking with you, right? It was a feature of his preaching. Where Pastor Paul here has this feature of his preaching where he's going to say, do you not know and when he does that, he's, he's gearing us up. He's preparing us to hear loving correction coming from a spiritual father. Six times in this chapter, he's beseeching this church. This really matters. Listen to what I'm about to say. Do you not know? I wrote a letter to my nephew this past week. And he's in, in the book, in boot camp right now for the Marines. And I, I wrote him a letter. And when I got done with my letter, I read it over. And I thought, man, this is a stupid letter. <laughs> it was just full of, like, trivial things, you know. It was just like, hey, this is what we did for Halloween, you know. And I, did, I got this for my birthday. It was great. You know, I looked over and I was like, I hope this is just going to encourage him to, like, maybe be distracted for a little while, but it said nothing of, I really, I really thought like someday I'm going to die and he's going to have this letter and he's going to be like, eh, my uncle was kind of surfacey. I think, you know, like I wrote nothing profound. I need, I'm going to do a much better time next week, a better swing next week. I'm going to write really rich things, but I was so bummed out by my letter. I bring that up because like Paul's not wasting a single word here. Each thing that he's saying is inspired by God the Spirit for our good. And when he writes, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's holding up the very standards of God's kingdom. The word unrighteous, you might have a translation that, that translates this, this Greek word in a really helpful way to wrongdoer. It's the exact Greek word that Paul used last week as Pastor Chad was here unpacking those verses where we saw in verse 8, Paul said, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. And so what we're looking at today is not totally separated, of course, from the verses that preceded it last week, the context of chapter 6. Paul is addressing how the Corinthians are dealing with conflict in their church and in these verses, Paul turns his attention on the ones in the church who are doing wrong in the midst of this conflict. And Paul's giving a warning. Do you not know that the wrongdoer or the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God. What Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, 43, he came to devote his preaching towards. 
the kingdom of God, that in the closing verses of Acts, Acts tells us that Paul devoted his preaching for. These verses are central, as Paul talks about, inheriting the kingdom of God to understanding God's purpose and rule his kingship in our lives today. And just notice, don't miss what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say the unrighteous won't earn the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is inherited. God's kingdom is experienced. It's entered into by God's grace and grace alone. See the difference between an inheritance and earning. You don't earn an inheritance. It's a gift. But this gift, Paul's holding up here, once again in Scripture, as it is held up again and again and again, this good news of the kingdom of God starts with hard things that we need to hear about ourselves. The announcement of the kingdom of God is that we are wrongdoers, that we are wrong, that we are unrighteous, and God alone is right, and he came to us in our wrongness. He descended into a world he created that we broke, and he freely pays the price for our unrighteousness so that we can be covered by his righteousness for all eternity. This is the kingdom of God. It began with Christ's ministry and it continues today and it will come in full fruition when he returns and makes all things new. And a kingdom is a kingdom because it has a king. It has laws and allegiances. It has knees that bow. And to be saved by Jesus means that we're under the rule of Jesus, that he isn't just our savior. I love what Kale asked these precious ones that were baptized today. Is Jesus your Lord, your king, and your savior? Paul's pleading with this church to live like they've been given this inheritance that is theirs. That he's saying, hey, you've been saved by grace You've known Jesus as Savior. You, you must know him as Lord. Your, your experience of grace will lead you to pursue the holiness of God. And so with that in mind, Paul says, hey, don't be deceived. I think all of this scripture, this passage today, hinges upon those four words, that warning. Don't be deceived, Paul is saying to this church. The nature of sin is that it deceives us into thinking it's not that serious. It deceives us in our perception of thinking that God's greatness and his righteousness is really small. That, that it deceives us into seeing the greatness of our sin is really small. It deceives us into telling ourselves, hey, God doesn't really care about my junk, my stuff. He's not really concerned with my sin. My stuff is little. It's my spouse's sin that's the real issue. It's my boss's actions that God is really concerned with. It's that group of people over there that, that God is really wanting to call to repentance. Really, I'm not on his radar. What I have going on, you know, it's, it's a small thing to him. It's not what I'm doing now. It's the sins that my mother and my father committed against me when I was younger. Really, even what I'm doing now isn't sin at all. It's just, you know, hang-ups. The real problem isn't me. It's those people with that stuff over there. 
And, you know, we're all different in this room. We all have different stories and different experiences, and we come from different places. But, man, I'm a lot like that. I'm exactly like that a lot of the time. And I suspect that all of us are a lot like that a lot of the time because we can all be deceived by sin. And Paul, in love, is shining a light into that deception, and he's writing to help us. And his message is God is more righteous and holy than we can ever imagine. Don't be deceived into thinking that that our sin is of little to no consequence. And so Paul goes on to mention some categories of sin that prevent us from experiencing the kingdom of God. He says the sexually immoral, those who have intercourse outside of the covenant of a marriage between a husband and a wife. He says idolaters, worshipers of any God besides the Lord. I had a, a friend, a dear pastor, Josh Curry, just got back from India. He was visiting our church plant there, Cornerstone, and he got to hang out with a, a young family that went to be a part of that plant. And they've got a little boy who's four. And they were telling Josh that recently their little four-year-old boy went to his dad and he said, hey, I think I'm going to start worshiping statues. <laughs> and the dad was like, you know, like mortified, like what, you know, and hey, that little boy's super ornery. So I'm 90% sure he was messing with his dad. But, but even if he wasn't, like he's just kind of processing the reality that, hey, this is all around me in this city. People are worshiping statues. And that was the reality here in Corinth. And we might think, okay, that's an issue in India. That's not an issue in Edmond, Oklahoma. But Idol worship is also placing anything and anyone as our ultimate source of life, hope, and identity and significance and salvation above God. Paul's going to say adulterers, married people who have sex with anyone besides their spouse. Then Paul says men who have sex with other men. Now note that, that Paul is saying that the act of unrighteousness is not mere attraction, but the act of sexual relations between these two men. Now, there are, I think, six main passages in Scripture that speak to homosexuality. This is one of them. But we need to go back to Genesis 2, 20 through 24, where God gives us his good design for for gender and the creation of marriage. Then we can look at Leviticus 18, verses 22, and Leviticus 20, verse 13, where we have held up before us holiness codes as it relates to sex. And then Paul, in the beginning of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, named both male and female homosexual sins as an outworking of idolatry. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, Paul mentions homosexuality again. And then here in our passage today, Paul specifically mentions men who practice homosexuality. And in this passage in the Greek, Paul uses the technical term that describes both partners who participate in homosexual relations between men. Now, Paul is mentioning homosexuality here, along with sexual immorality and adultery, sexual sins, among many other sins in this list, because they were something that this church dealt with on the daily in the city of Corinth. You might notice uh, after reading that list that it, it weighs heavy on the front end towards sexual sin, and that's because in Corinth were the temples of Venus and Aphrodite. 
And sacred prostitution, both hetero and homosexual, was literally an act of worship there. That that idolatry and worship, it encouraged, more than encouraged, it demanded this type of sexual sin. And this sin was crouching at the door of the church in Corinth every day. And the Bible clearly speaks about sex and our bodies and God's good design for them both. And this is the truth, that God's design for sex is beautiful. And it leads to human flourishing. And we're going to talk a lot about sex next week as we continue in this chapter. Yet today, if you struggle with sex or sexuality or have questions or wounding or want to process, that you have spiritual leaders and pastors who love you, that, that want to move towards you, will pray with you, and want to process anything that you want to process. We'd be honored to talk with you. Paul goes on to say thieves people who steal what doesn't belong to them. The greedy, people whose hearts are, are always wanting more and more and more, they're never content. Paul lists drunkards, someone who makes a practice of being intoxicated through abusing alcohol. Paul mentions revilers, your Bible might say slanderers, those who untruthfully attack others. I wrote in my notes, reputational arsonists. I thought it was good. That's why I mentioned it. <laughs> Swindlers is the final thing Paul mentions. Those who cheat or trick others, especially for their own gain. Now, I want to point out something about Paul's list here. Notice that he gives sexual sins, both heterosexual and homosexual, right next to each other. He gives non-sexual sins right alongside sexual sins. Notice that Paul puts on this list sins that we could consider really serious in Edmond, Oklahoma in 2022. Things like adultery. <laughs> but also notice, and really slow down to notice, that Paul puts on this list, sadly, in Edmond, Oklahoma in 2022, things that we wouldn't think are a big deal at all. Greed. I, I don't think until I really started studying 1 Corinthians, I could give you a sensible definition and explanation of what reviling or slandering was. See, Paul is not listing a hierarchical scale of sin. These are all equal identities that this church used to walk in that kept them from the kingdom. Paul doesn't name this as an exclusive list either of all the things that would bar us from experiencing the kingdom. There's some notable things missing. Thou shalt not kill, case in point. Why these particular things, right? Why this list? Because these are issues that this particular church is dealing with these were specific ways this church used to live before they experienced the saving grace of Jesus and are still entangled by. So Paul is using this list to make a point with the church in Corinth because it's not random. It's comprehensive. It's contextualized to them. This list is concerning their lives in that church. Paul's saying, let's address some stuff that you guys are struggling with day in and day out. Paul's asking, hey, what does God's word have to say with your trip home from work? 
church in Corinth, when you're tired and you're discouraged and you're stressed and you have to walk in the vicinity of that temple of Aphrodite and those temple prostitutes call out to you when you walk by, what does God's word have to say in that moment? What's reality? When your friends from work head that way, and they invite you and call to you and say, hey, come and blow off some steam and, and de-stress. What does God's word have to say to you in that moment when they're calling you to, quote, unquote, worship along with them? Or when you have conflict in the church, Paul's asking, and you're out to lunch with a group, and then somebody that you are in the midst of conflict with, their name comes up. Paul's asking, hey, what does God's word have to say about how you speak about them in that moment? Do you take the flamethrower out and set fire to their reputation? Or do you honor and bless? See, if you're like me, when you're reading this list, you may even have a temptation to review the list and think, check, I'm good. Like, none of those nine or ten things maybe apply to me. I actually don't get to do that. A lot of these things apply to me. But even if you feel like you can do that, we're missing the point. See, Paul's saying the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, and he gives this church a specific list because that is specifically what they're dealing with. But Paul is saying in these verses that there is a, a, a bigger problem than we realize. Our biggest problem is not experiencing wrong from others, like this church thought, or even doing wrong to others, our issue at the core is that we are wrongdoers. We are unrighteous. It's a problem of essence and identity. It's not just our action. It's our orientation apart from Christ. And Paul isn't merely listing actions this church committed. He's calling out identities they once walked in. This was who they were. But God saved them. He gave them a new identity. But the tragedy is that they've forgotten. This church is experiencing an issue of what one commentator called gospel amnesia. And anybody who's spent time with a loved one who has, because of cognitive decline, forgotten who you are or, or who they are, you know the pain of that. And that's what this church, in a way, on a soul, on a spiritual level, is experiencing. They've forgotten their God-given identity, and it means nothing to them in this moment. And they're failing to be who they really are in Christ. They are saints, but they're acting like unrepentant sinners. They are righteous, but they're acting in unrighteous ways. They are a community that should shine a light into darkness, but they are dark, and they don't need a new identity. They need to be reminded. They need to relearn who they are because of what Christ has done. And so listen to what Paul has to say. The second thing we need to see, rightly seeing God's grace Rightly seeing God's grace, verse 11. And Paul says these beautiful words in light of that list. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But, but you were washed. And the ESV that I'm reading from, it cleans up the grammar. But, but every time 
Paul says this, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. The church in Corinth wasn't just doing unrighteous things. They were, at one point, unrighteous people. They loved themselves more than God. They loved created things more than the loving creator who made them. They once lived in darkness, but the light of the grace and the love of God has shined into that darkness. That darkness has been dispelled by God's mercy. And all of these things that they have done, that we've done, are all in the category, because of who Christ is, of of before. Once were some of you. They've been erased in Christ Jesus. We once were immoral, idolaters, greedy, slanderous, drunks, all until Jesus changes everything. In this church, in our church, it wasn't like before we met Jesus, we were shining pillars of of morality and virtue. But Jesus saved us when we were still sinners. And so Paul's going to say, but you were washed. You were washed, a spiritual cleansing from guilt and sin that happened when we met Jesus, when regeneration happened, when we were saved. The image is this, if sin is dirt... When we're saved by grace, when we know the love and the faith that is a gift of the Spirit, and and we put our faith in Christ Jesus, that, that filth and that stain is washed away. This is what is written in Titus by Paul. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. This is what it means to be washed. When God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. What Noble and Bryce did this morning, what they proclaimed for us to celebrate with them is all about that reality. This is what baptism is all about. It's a symbol and a proclamation of the soul-washing reality for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul says, but you were sanctified. A break with the love of sin when we put our faith in Jesus. The image of this is this. If sin is a chain holding us captive, the chain has been shattered by Christ. That's sanctification. Simply put, we, we are made holy, which means we're set apart. And it's God's ongoing process of making us more like Jesus. And we're set free to follow Jesus in joyful obedience. Look at what Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 6. Writing about Jesus, he said, when he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let, let, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not, let anyone, uh, do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have no new life. So use your body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. 
Sin is no longer your master. That's the beauty and the truth of sanctification. And then Paul says, but you were justified, which means declared righteous in the name of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. If being in the wrong is guilty, then if we're justified, that means that Jesus, by his power and his work, has taken us and put us in the right. The image of this is, is, is in Christ, our status, our essence has changed from guilt to freedom and innocence. Paul's using here legal and judicial words. He's saying God has already already declared his sons and daughters to be righteous. It's this good news in Romans 8. This is justification. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Paul's saying you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. And so, like, this is what this means if you're in Christ today. Like, we sang some interesting songs today that I think, because we don't fully understand some things as we ought, they can be difficult for us to sing. So when we sing that first song, and I believe the line's something like, I put my faith in Jesus, my anchor to the ground, my hope, my firm foundation, he never lets me down. He never lets me down. Or when we sing the king of my heart, you're never going to let me down. You're going to never let me down. We can have too small of a idea of what that means and a non-biblical idea of what that means, meaning like, hey, I've had a really hard week or I'm going through hardship. Those things aren't true. God has let me down. And it's like, no, no, that. The Bible never promises that if you follow Christ, you're going to have an easy life or miss out on hardship. It promises things that are far greater than that. That you were washed, that you were sanctified, that you were justified. When when we sing, you're never going to let me down. You're never going to let me fall into death. All eternity is different for, for me because I was washed in Christ. I was sanctified in Christ. I was justified in Christ. I can sing things like, you're never going to let me down because, Jesus, you always keep your promises. And even if it feels like hell right now, that I know I, I have a, a Savior who keeps his promises and that there's a kingdom that has been prepared for me and I was washed, I was justified, I was sanctified. And you're never going to let me down because that means that, that for all eternity, Jesus, because of what you've done and the grace I know in you, death doesn't have a hold on me. Paul's point to this church and Paul's point to our church is, hey, live in a way like you've received that gift. Live out of what God has already done in your life. Baptism, justification, sanctification, all empowered by the Holy Spirit. That If we repent of our sins, no matter what they are, God is faithful to forgive us and we will inherit the kingdom that Jesus has prepared for us. See, we can be deceived in lots of ways. We can be deceived and say, look, my sin is something small. God doesn't really care about it. Or 
You might be here this morning, you can be deceived and say, hey, my sins are so big, God would never love or forgive me. Don't be deceived either way. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever would dare to believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than we ever dared hope. And so we get to come to the table if we're in Christ. We get a reminder of this because we need a reminder of this. And 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 celebrate the power of the cross, the gift of Christ's life given freely for us so that we, in him, can have victory over sin. We have a new identity. We've been washed. We've been sanctified. We've been justified. And if you're in Christ, if you've been baptized, we get to come to that table and proclaim and celebrate that reality. And if you're not yet a Christian, if you're just here exploring the, the claims of Scripture, hey, this, this is an invitation to you. There's an inheritance. It doesn't have to be earned. It's just a gift to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You too can be washed of sin that has stained you. You too can be sanctified, set apart, freed from sin. You too can be justified, declared innocent because of the work of Christ. You too can know the kingdom of God forever. If you haven't done that, do that today. Right now where you are, confess sin, ask Jesus to forgive you. Come up here and talk to a leader that would love to pray with you here in a minute. Let's stand and pray.